step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Because what I'm going to say sounds like a conspiracy theory. It isn't. Every dot and comma of what follows is fact. And what we believe is that there has never been an open, honest and impartial investigation into this assassination. And he subjected it to the most rigorous forensic and scientific examination. And what that showed was not eight shots, which is what the official story is, but 13. You can't get 13 shots out of an 8-shot revolver. That's physically impossible. Bobby Kennedy was shot, the autopsy shows, at a distance of one and a half inches from behind his right ear. You can't physically do that. And LAPD knew this. How did they know this? Because every single eyewitness told them this. Whatever else is or isn't true. Bobby Kennedy was executed at close at such close range that it could not have been an accident. By a professional. This is a professional hit. Those documents show that in the 1950s, the mid-1950s, the CIA set up something called Operation Artichoke to create, its words, a hypno-programmed robot assassin who would carry out an assassination of a redacted politician or an American official and who would then, having carried out the assassination, have no memory of having done so. So by the late 1950s, the CIA has perfected this technique. That's not a theory that's not a conspiracy theory, it's a fact. You know, someone much wiser than me described him as probably the best president the US never had. John Kennedy was one thing. Robert Kennedy, to my mind, was the real deal. He wanted a different kind of war. He wanted a war on economic inequality and on social injustice. And... What he was proposing was not just a revolution, but was revolutionary. Had Bobby Kennedy made it to the Oval Office, not just America, but the world would have looked a very different place. If Sahan didn't do it, he couldn't have done it. And LAP knew that he couldn't have done it. Who did?
So on Atwood Unleashed, you saw a short interview we did with Tim Tate. It is one of the highest rated interviews on the channel in terms of percentage likes. But so many people have been sending us messages saying, get Tim in the studio, get Tim in the studio. Here he is in the studio, all the way from Bath, <laughs> near Bath. Um, also in the studio is Matthew Steeples of the Steeples Times. So today we are going to be talking at length about the assassination of RFK, the investigation and things that, you know, inconsistencies and Tim's theory of what may have happened versus what kind of was portrayed to have happened. If there is enough time, we can go into some of the other areas that Tim has expertise on and research on. And if you're not familiar with him, he's a best-selling author of more than 18 books, released 80-plus documentary films. Do you like sleep? I had a large family. (laughs) he shot to fame with the groundbreaking investigative series, The Cook Report, which I used to sit up and watch with my dad when I was a kid. Oh, that was on, back on ITV. He also worked for the Yorkshire Post. And Matthew is the proprietor of the Steeples Times. And the links for Tim and Matthew will be in the description box below the video. So if you want to get Tim's book, it's just one click away. Matthew's also thinking of writing a book, but we can't talk about that subject matter on this channel. So, Tim, huge thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) June the 5th, 1968. What happened? Late on June the 4th, early hours June the 5th, 1968. It's just literally on the cusp between the two. This is in California. Robert F. Kennedy is campaigning for is in the election for the democratic party primary election in california again for those of your viewers who aren't terribly au fait with american politics and how it works and it is quite a study both parties the main parties have what are called primary elections to decide who is going to be their candidate in the presidential election of that particular year Bobby Kennedy was a candidate for the Democratic Party primary, sorry, in the Democratic Party primaries in 1968, the summer of 1968. The presidential election was going to take place in November in 1968. Whoever won the primaries would be crowned, anointed, if you like, (laughs) at the Democratic Convention in Chicago in the autumn. So he's campaigning. He's had a bit of a mixed ride. He's won a lot, but he's lost a couple. And California was the big one. If he lost California, he was going to be out of the race. If he won California, the likelihood was, no guarantee, but it was pretty certain, he would be given the Democratic Party nomination to be the presidential candidate in November and would square off against the Republican Richard Nixon. That's the background. June the 4th, 1968, was election day in the California primary and the election results trickled in. California's a big state. By midnight, it's clear Bobby Kennedy has won 
the primary. That's it. His path to the presidency is now a lot clearer. And he takes the stage in the ambassador ballroom in downtown L.A., to give thanks. All his supporters have gathered, a lot of his supporters have gathered there. There were more more than 2,000 people in the hotel that night. And he takes the stage in the ballroom to thank them and to thank all the people who'd worked so hard for him. And he ends his acceptance speech with the words, my thanks to you all. Now, flashing a FIFA victory sign, it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Within 15 minutes, he would be dying on the floor in the pantry behind the ballroom. The grief. So what happens then at that 15 minutes point? What, where is he? How does he interact with the assassin or assassins? He finishes his speech and he's meant to be going to a press conference with the print media in another part of the hotel, and there's a prearranged route to get him through all the crowds in the hotel. At the last minute, l- almost literally the last minute, that route is changed, and only two or three people know. And instead of taking him on the route that had been planned, they take him off the back of the stage towards a kitchen pantry through which he would go through the labyrinthine bits of the hotel. Was that decision his decision or was that someone else's decision? That was his, I was about to say security team. That might be a pretty grand way of putting putting it. There weren't, wasn't much in the way of security in those days for presidential candidates, let alone those in primaries. Um, it was not his decision. It was taken by a couple of people pretty high up in his team but it wasn't widely known so he's led off the back of the stage through the curtains and he and the entourage and some reporters follow with him at that point all the cameras that are following him all the television cameras are turned off they're switched off the cameras in in the ballroom carry on and they're broadcasting a live feed all the way through this. But all the cameras that are following him think, well, he's, he's walking through to a press conference, we'll switch off. The will, as it turns out, be one exception. It's not a camera. It's a small cassette tape recorder that a lone Canadian reporter, almost a freelance, who's been following the campaign and wants to write a book about the campaign, has inadvertently left running. He doesn't realise he's left it running, but he follows on the entourage, not knowing, not realising that his little cassette recorder is running. And he will capture the only tape that captures the sounds of what happened next. Wow. Have you heard it, Matthew? I haven't heard it, but um, no, my... my so that the, this this person didn't realise this until much later, I assume. He didn't realise this until a lot later. <laughs> um, largely when he, he was based in Canada, when the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, came and knocked on his door on behalf of the FBI and said, can we have your tape, please? And he unthinkingly handed over the tape. It went to the FBI. They didn't think much of it either. They didn't realise what they 
They, yeah. didn't, they didn't realize what they'd got. <laughs> no. And it went from the FBI to Los Angeles Police Department, who were conducting the investigation. And for the next 20 years, it was buried because all of LAPD's evidence was buried for 20 years, suppressed. Finally, it was released, without anyone knowing really what it was, to the California State Archives in 1988. It would be almost 10 years before my co-author happened to get hold of a copy from the archives and realised what it was. So with, with a situation like this, is it standard 20 years or or was 20 years just a, a random number that was... The story of the suppression of LAPD's case, its files, its investigative reports, its recordings, everything, is an extraordinary story. Almost from the moment of the assassination, LAPD and the DA promised we will release everything to the public very shortly. They spent the next 20 years doing two things. They spent, the first thing they did was destroy some of that evidence. The next thing they did was fight every attempt, and there were any number of legal attempts to get them to, f to force them to release this material. They fought these up and down through court after court, and finally, it took until 1988, they were forced to begin handing over the files to the California State Archive, which is where, in 1988, I got hold of them. So earlier on, you said it was a couple of people in his security detail that had this new route. Ultimately, who was in charge of the security detail? Was it a government agency? No. And that's, you know, one of the things which, at this distance, because of everything we know and because of the political climate we're in now, it seems outlandish. There was no automatic protection assigned to candidates in presidential primaries. The Secret Service, the American Secret Service, which protects presidential candidates now, no, it wasn't involved. LAPD had sort of offered some protection to, the, to Kennedy and his entourage because there had been threats to Kennedy all the way through this campaign. They didn't have the greatest of relationships, the Kennedy team and LAPD, and in the end... Bobby's security came down really to one or two people, one of, you know, basically working for the campaign, one of whom was a, a big American football player. Um, but in terms of... So they were privately employed oh, yes. security there detail. Was, I sh we, we need to be clear about this because it's, it's going to crop up as well later on in the story. The hotel itself had security. Bobby's wasn't the only campaign party. There were other election races taking place on that day. And the hotel was absolutely stuffed with election parties. And the hotel had its own staff, its own security detail. Some of them were full-time, employed by the hotel. Some of them were renter cops people who were brought in on an ad hoc basis from a private company, given a uniform and a gun, and told to patrol. 
So basically, like nightclub bouncer type security guards, rather than yeah, I mean, than absolutely. You know, These were not particularly well trained. They were part time. The, you know, the rent a cop guys mostly had other jobs. Um, they were given a uniform and a gun. So where was Saran Saran positioned in relation to the pantry? Sahan goes to the Ambassador Hotel that evening, and he has a couple of drinks there. And this is earlier in the evening, and he then he decides, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to go home, and he goes back to his car, and he thinks, I'm a bit drunk. This was a man who supposedly didn't drink much, mm -hmm. from what is I've read of. He him. he did drink. He was, yes, you know, he but was, he wasn't a heavy drinker. No, he wasn't a heavy drinker. But he'd had a, a couple of Tom Collins drinks, cocktails, and he felt a bit pissed, to put it bluntly. So he said to himself, "I'm going to go back into the hotel because there are coffee stands and coffee urns all over the place. I'm going to get some coffee, and I'm going to sober up before I drive home." The last thing Sahan can remember. And this has not changed since June the 4th, 1968. Is having coffee at a coffee urn with an attractive girl who he rather fancied and who he thought I might have a chance with her. He can't remember anything that follows until he wakes up, if you want to put it that way, with this big... American football player who's Bob, one of Bobby's bodyguards jumping on his head in the pantry and the smell of cordite in the air. So we don't actually know then what happened in the pantry, do we? Yes, we do. Okay. We know absolutely and precisely what happened in the pantry. And the reason we know, belatedly, is because every single page of the surviving LAPD investigative files and the FBI investigative files are in California State Archives. Now, I should say there are more than 100,000 individual pages. Wow. And there are hours upon hours of audio tapes and some video and film. And, and how many people were in this room at that time we're talking several dozen and the pantry is a relatively narrowish darkish area and basically it's a pantry on beside a kitchen kennedy comes in if you want to look at it schematically kennedy ca enters it from that side and he's got a group of supporters campaign staff journalists following on behind him at this end of the pantry, standing beside a tray stacker, is Sahan. And as Kennedy gets into the pantry, Sahan steps forward from the tray stacker, raises his arm. He's got a twenty-two caliber, a cheap Ivor Johnson twenty-two. It's called a Saturday Night Special. They are, I mean, they're cheap nasty guns he raises it points it towards kennedy and fires all eight shots in the revolver 
five people behind Kennedy are wounded. Kennedy collapses to the floor. He's been shot three times. Sahan is pounced on. Oddly, although there's this big American football player and the hotel maitre d', assistant maitre d', jumping all over him and trying to wrestle the gun on him, he seems to have some kind of manic strength and seems unable to realise what's going on, and he's still trying to fire this empty revolver. But they wrestle it from him, and at some point during this point, but after the shots are fired, the, the cameras, television cameras are switched on, and press photographers are clicking pictures, and anyone who knows anything about this story will have seen the iconic image of Bobby Kennedy lying on the floor like that, with a hotel busboy standing over him, and a pool of blood beside his head. Kennedy, we should say, is not dead at this point. He's mortally wounded. He will die just over 24 hours later. And with regard to the the tape recorder, what noise does it hear? Okay, we're getting getting well ahead of of this story. But in essence... The story of the, this tape, this tape recording was made by a Canadian reporter called Stash Brzezinski. He didn't realize, as I say, that he'd made it, but he had. My co-author, Brad Johnson, who sadly died last year, mm. got hold of this tape in 1997, and no one had bothered to listen to it. He didn't realize what he had until he put on some high-quality headphones and listened to this odd and slightly mismarked tape because it had been mismarked and and filing and he thought that's odd that sounds like more than eight shots brad was like me an old school journalist you don't think oh that sounds like something that's good enough we'll go to print with that he arranged for serious forensic examination of that tape. He contracted it out to one of the top experts in audio recordings in the United States, a man who quite literally wrote the book on tape recording, and a man called Phil Van Prague. And Phil is an extraordinary and painstaking man. And he he got hold of the original from California State Archives. With their permission, he made high resolution open reel copies of it and he subjected it to the most rigorous forensic and scientific examination and what that showed was not eight shots which is what the official story is but 13 13 shots you can't get 13 shots out of an eight shot revolver That's physically impossible. The official version of events is that nobody else fired a gun in that pantry that night, only Sehan. And the official version of events is that LAPD accounted for every one of those eight bullets. Mm, Because there were five people injured. 
there were three shots into him and wasn't there a fourth shot that went into his suit or something there was a fourth that passed through his suit one of these shots allegedly that injured the one of the people behind him had already hit somebody else and had yes. done. there's quite a complicated and slightly convoluted diagram drawn up by lapd's criminalist not a man of the greatest probity it has to be said hmm. um but essentially lapd said we know what happened to all eight shots there were only eight shots well the stash prasinski recording shows 13 have you heard the recording yes do you have the recording yes could we get the recording? You'd have to get the upgraded recording. And Phil Van Prague, who is a fantastic man and an utterly painstaking, careful, forensic analyzer of this stuff, will happily, I'm sure, get you a copy of the upgraded recording. What you then have to do, bear in mind, this is a period of no more than five or six seconds. You then have to do what he did, which is to put it on... Slow motion. No, on computers. Yeah. Every forensic audio analyst will tell you the same thing. A gunshot has a visible and distinct visual pattern. When you translate this into onto a computer screen, a gunshot looks like a gunshot. Now, the different guns have slightly different waveforms, but a gunshot's a gunshot. What Phil did, and you know, I cannot speak highly enough of his work, was to do this and to show each of the waveforms and to show, amongst other things, that there were 13. And would, it, would the waveforms differ between the guns? If yeah. there was a second gun, it would surely have a different pattern to the first gun. That's the third of Phil's remarkable pieces of forensic evidence. The first was that there are 13 shots. The second is, and this is a tribute again to Phil's incredible professionalism. He said, okay, I'm working with an audio cassette originally. That's my master, my source material. And it's been recorded on a pretty cheap, nasty cassette recorder and it would have aged as well so it was, did, was it affected by the age of well, less age because yes. no it, it wouldn't really have aged them I mean, you have to bear in mind that all cassette tapes anyone you know of a certain age will remember the c90s and c60s that we used to have they had wobble and wow and you know phil worked with that and there are programs which he has which deal with that but what he said was it's not enough just to know what the machine was i'm going to get hold of a copy of the machine an exact copy of that machine so he sourced his own tape recorder which matched exactly stas stash prusinski's recorder because that can affect the analysis of the recording and he didn't just do that he then said stash prusinski wasn't static he wasn't sitting in a corner holding out a microphone he was walking through the pantry behind bobby kennedy that too is going to affect the sounds and what they look like and how they appear and with all those people in the in the presence you've got all the background noise which yeah has to be filtered out surely also stash 
Uh, sorry, Phil then conducted his own field experiments. He recreated these with the exact dimensions and the exact movements. And that revealed something remarkable. Forensic revelation number two. Not merely were the 13 shots. Eight of them came from that direction. Five of them came from that direction. They came from two different directions. What does that tell you? Two shooters. Two guns. Two guns, two shooters. It was a remarkable piece of work, but Phil, again, and I'm an act, I know I'm bigging him up and singing his praises, but they should be sung, wasn't finished then. He said, I've got these images, I've got this forensic analysis. Can I, try, can I see, do they show me what the guns were? Because each gun emits, although the, the waveform looks similar, they each have their own characteristics. And he was able, after a long and painstaking examination, to show that the eight shots that came from over here came from a twenty-two caliber Ivor Johnson Saturday Night Special, identical to the one that Sahan was. And remember, Sahan was over here. The five shots that came from over here came from a slightly different gun, similar, but not the same. That's three really important pieces of forensic evidence. Where did the bullets go? That is one of the first things that I looked at. and I, my, my start on this case came in 1988, really when the files began to rele be released to the California State Archives. One of the things I found in those files, bear in mind LAPD had suppressed these files for 20 years, was a series of photographs. Those photographs were of LAPD officers and LA Sheriff's Department officers pointing at bullet holes and bullets in the walls of the Ambassador Hotel Pantry. Bear in mind, LAPD has accounted for all eight mm. bullets ostensibly. If there were more, if they found more in the woodwork, that means a second gun. You can't. Hmm. That is well. There was obviously physically not time to reload the first no, gun. Absolutely you know, so, not. So, so there has to be a second gun. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They found, and there are photographs of them with these, pointing at them, marking them as bullet holes, 14. 14 bullet holes. What strike, struck me then, when I first saw these photographs and first read the reports, 
was that not just that these are extra bullets, bullets which can't be accounted for under the official version, but that LAPD knew. And they knew within 24 hours, because that's when these photographs were taken. Wow. And have you visited this pantry, or does it still exist? Or The, the Ambassador Hotel um, closed down. Yes. Um, not immediately. And there was a lengthy period in which it was derelict and fenced off. Eventually, it was sold to a certain real estate and hotel owner, a man called Donald J. Trump. <laughs> it no longer is in Trump's um, possession. In fact, it doesn't exist. It was torn down in the end, and it's now um, an educational establishment. So, no, I haven't been to no. the pantry because... Because no, the pantry doesn't exist. The pantry doesn't exist. However... What is quite useful are videotapes that I found that LAPD had made in the days and weeks and then years after the shooting. And these were recreations that it itself had done, had mounted in the pantry with the key witnesses. And they have someone being Sahan, and they have someone being Bobby Kennedy, and then they have the witnesses. And they recorded three of these over separate time periods. In each one, there are two things that are absolutely, unequivocally crystal clear. The first is that Sahan is there. And he is three feet minimum from Bobby Kennedy, who is there, and he is facing Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was shot, the autopsy shows, at a distance of one and a half inches from behind his right ear. You can't physically do that. And LAPD knew this. How did they know this? Because every single eyewitness told them this. And that's the other thing that's on the videotapes of the recreations which it itself mounted. So therefore it the was... The eyewitnesses tell them. No, no, no. Sahan was there. He was at least three feet in front of Bobby. So you suggest it was somebody who followed from the ballroom itself behind him. The autopsy report is... Or someone who was already waiting there. The autopsy report is absolutely crystal clear. It was carried out by the top medical examiner of the time in Los Angeles, Thomas Noguchi, coroner to the stars, as he became known. And I interviewed Tom Noguchi. He's still alive. He's a remarkable man. And his, his post-mortem showed that Kennedy had been shot behind the right ear. That was the fatal shot at a distance of between one and a half and three inches. And he knew that because there were powder burns. And he tested the gun, and he tested what distance you would need to have the gun at to get powder burns. And he used pig's ears, which is a standard technique. And that's how they came up with the figure of one and a half to three inches. And it was absolutely... I've seen the autopsy report. I've seen the diagrams. 
That's where the shots were fired, behind his right ear and behind his right shoulder. You cannot do that if you are three feet in front of the victim. I had the Bonanno crime family associate. I, I wrote his life story in prison. He was a multiple homicide murderer serving over 140 plus years. And I asked him about his preferred method of killing people. And he was talking about the skull. And he said his preferred method of killing people was to go in right here so that the skull didn't circumvent the bullet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whatever else is or isn't true, Bobby Kennedy was executed at close at such close range that it could not have been an accident by a professional this is a professional hit unquestionably it's a professional hit there are a few questions which to me followed from that I and mean, the first is obvious if sahan didn't do it he couldn't have done it and lap knew that he couldn't have done it who did? I mean, that's mm. a, a fairly fundamental question, isn't it? And it was somebody who was obviously able to get close enough that they somebody were... Somebody who was who behind were, Who was obviously considered um, safe enough to be in the vicinity. But then you have to ask yourself, and I think this is a reasonable line of inquiry, how would... Why was Sahan there is the first... First question. This is what's on my mind. Yes. He's, he's seducing and, a woman over a coffee one and, minute. And why, why would this man have no memory? The memory thing we, I think we'll come back yes, to. What was what in, the, they, what was in what, that what, coffee? What was in the coffee and why was that woman there? Ah. <laughs> how did Sahan get there? And, how, you know, in fairness to LAPD, Sahan did fire his weapon at Kennedy that night. He didn't hit him. He hit the five people behind him. But how come Sahan just happens to be there when a professional assassin, firing his gun, when a professional assassin is putting a slug behind Bobby Kennedy? And where did he get this gun if he was just out on a night out drinking? Well, he had a gun. It came from his brother. That that much we know. Again, we've got the LAPD paperwork for that. So Um, Sahan was carrying a gun on him? Yeah, he'd got it from his car. Um, when he went back in to have coffee. All of this, you might think, is fairly strange behaviour. I mean, it is very strange behaviour. And, assuming we've got time, it's about to get more strange. Great. We like it. (laughs) So that's the first question. How did Sahan... Why was Sahan there? Why was he... Did he happen to be in the room firing a weapon when the real assassin happens to be executing Bobby Kennedy. That's, you know, that's an extraordinary So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about Sahan himself and, and his background and why he was in this hotel in the first place. Sahan is a Palestinian immigrant. He's Palestinian Christians. He'd been in the US um, since he was 12. His family had come across and he lived in the LA, greater LA area. He was an unremarkable student at school, Neither he nor there didn't really have much above a few parking tickets. Um, he had had a failed career as um, a jockey. That hadn't gone well. He had a bad fall. 
and had a tri- had been treated for that. Um, he eked out a bit of a living as a what's what was called a hot walker on walking the horses round after they'd been ridden at a track. But he was basically a young man, unremarkable young man in the area with no real police record and no real presence in any or no real motive to kill Ken. He had no political connections. There would in time be allegations, and there still are allegations, that Sahan killed Bobby Kennedy because Bobby Kennedy had supported the sale of jets, fighter jets, to Israel. And the sole evidence which supports this contention is some very odd writing that Sahan did in a journal, a notebook at home. If you'll bear with me, we'll come back to that journal because it's going to be important. But that's the only evidence. His friends from school and his workmates said no, he had no great political beliefs. So he was somebody who enjoyed horse racing and drinking yeah, a, a and bit of gambling. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, he was, you know, it's 1968. Yes. He's. Um, and he liked. Good, he obviously liked young women. Yeah, and, he's a good-looking uh, you know, young man. You know, he hasn't. Got, he hasn't got much of a job or much money. Mm-hmm. But you know, this is California in 1968. It's probably quite a good place to be. It's certainly better than where Palestine, where he came from. Do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's a business scam out to get you. Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take control of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. I had a friend once who was absolutely obsessed with signing up for things. In the old days, he actually had to use a pen and paper, but because it's only a click away, he ended up connected not just to magazines, the online versions, but just about every streaming service there was. I thought he was odd, but really, looking back on it, he was no exception. There's so many people like that. He got onto this Truebill app. He used it. And, well, he certainly saved himself a lot of money. It seemed to offer him the choice of getting out of all the stuff that he couldn't remember. He did quite well out of it. I uh, tried to convince him it was my idea. Truebill has over two million users and helped save them over a hundred million dollars. Like Matthew B., who says... In a matter of seconds, I saved $660 for the year on my direct TV bill, saved $120 for the year on my Sirius XM bill, and saved $840 a year 
on car insurance. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com slash Sean. Go right now, truebill.com slash Sean. It could save you thousands, thousands a year. Truebill.com slash Sean. How much time elapsed between him having the coffee and the incident? Probably, and I stress the word probably, no more than half an hour. There or thereabouts. And was the lady he was with ever identified? Which is where we come to one of the strangest and most bizarre elements of this story. (laughs) The young lady he was having a coffee with was hanging around the hotel in in various rooms for much of that evening. She was wearing a distinctive polka dot dress and more than two dozen people saw her and noticed her in the hotel and they noticed that she had some in some cases she was trying to get into bobby kennedy's into the ballroom when she hadn't got a pass a number of people saw her with sahan all of these witness statements eyewitness statements are in lapd's much delayed files investigative files that she was there there is no doubt that more than two dozen people saw her described her and talked to the police about her behavior is also not in doubt and nor is it any doubt that she interacted with sahan and she it appears was the person with whom he had a coffee we need to fast forward half an hour There's a young campaign worker, a young woman called Sandy Serrano, and she'd been running Youth for Kennedy in the area, getting the vote out, getting young people's vote out, getting Latina and Hispanic vote out for Kennedy in the primary. And she was at the ballroom for the victory party and to hear Bobby Kennedy speak. She was a late teen, early 20s. It was incredibly hot in the ballroom, and Sandy, just at the point Kennedy winds up his speech, steps out to get some air onto a fire escape just outside the ballroom. And she's sitting there when a young woman wearing a polka dot dress and a male companion rush out, pushing past her on the fire escape, shouting, We shot him. We killed him. And Sandy doesn't know there's been a shooting at this point and says, who? Who did you kill? Who did you shoot? The senator, we shot him and they disappear. This sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Mm. It sounds the sort of thing, particularly in American conspiracy theory stories, that crops up two or three years later. No. Sandy rushed down the fire escape, went round to the front of the hotel and found the first person she could find and said, what do you, what's happened? Has something happened in the ballroom? That person happened to be an assistant US attorney. She told him exactly what she'd seen. In the meantime, other people have seen this young woman rushing out of the building 
and have heard her say something similar. Within an hour, Sandy is telling her story live on television. She's interviewed outside, and her story is halting, and she's in tears because she's by now discovered that Kennedy has been shot. And her story is exactly the same as she told the assistant U.S. attorney within three minutes. And was there a description of the man she was with? Yes, there was. And that description would go on to match other eyewitness statements of other suspicious individuals with whom Sehan had been interacting or not interacting. The polka dot dress story, however, doesn't end there. The polka dot dress girl, because Sandy's story, her interview, has gone out live on television in the early hours of June 5th, it's now a big story. The hunt is on for the polka dot dress girl. Who is this mysterious woman? LAPD's behaviour in the days and weeks that follow is utterly inexplicable. Every It rounds up everyone who, who was an eyewitness who gave a description of the polka dot dress girl. It then tries to put forward its own candidate for the polka dot dress girl, who turns out to have been on crutches at the time. So she couldn't run run down the fire exit. Funny you should say that. (laughs) And doesn't look anything like the descriptions given by the eyewitnesses, much less by Sandy Serrano. It then hauls Sandy in for what it calls a polygraph. Funny thing about LAPD's investigation, there are a number of recordings of their polygraph interviews. As far as I can see, and bear in mind I went through every one of the 100,000 plus pages in these files, the polygraphs were only administered to people whose stories didn't match the official version. And when those polygraphs didn't give LAPD the result they wanted to, they wanted, it resorted to some really disgraceful tactics. When I went to the California State Archives and I was getting all these documents and getting the tape recordings, I came across an audio cassette of Sandy Serrano's polygraph recording, polygraph interview. I don't know if you know much about polygraphs. Polygraphs are, if they work, need to be recorded in conditions of utter calm. You normally ask a few control questions, two or three important questions, and that's it. But it's utterly calm. I plugged Sandy Serrano's polygraph interview recordings into a cassette player, and was shocked. The officer conducting it screams at her. He yells at her, You're lying! It is the most abusive, verbally violent interview I have heard in many, many years. I mean, even hearing it now, and, you know, I first found it, 
what, 30-something years ago, I am still shocked by the level of verbal violence in that. And this is meant to be a polygraph recording. After several hours, not the limited time that a polygraph is meant to take, several hours of browbeating Sandy Serrano, the most the officer had managed to do was to get her to say, well, I, I, I might have been a bit confused, but I saw what I saw. LAPD then issued a public statement saying she has admitted she lied and made it all up. They did this with everyone who saw the the polka dot dress girl. And what became of her subsequently? Is she still alive or? Again, tribute to my co-author here, Brad Johnson, the late Brad. He had been working away beavering away on this case we've both individually spent 25 plus years on this case individually and together and as we were writing the book i got an email from him brad was based in atlanta and he said i think i found the polka dot dress girl you know this is 2017 wow so almost 50 years later he had shown, he had had a tip. Somebody, a relative of a particular woman, had contacted one of the survivors of the assassination, who is a long-time campaigner for Sahan, and said, look, I think there's something about my aunt. I'm, you know, she talked about this. And the, this man, this survivor, this campaigner, had passed it on to Brad. Brad did what a good reporter should do. He put together a photo lineup of a number of women. Included in them was the photo of this particular woman, a woman called Elaine Neal. Seven out of eight of the eyewitnesses to the polka dot dress girl picked her out, said, that's her. That's the polka dot dress girl. Elaine Neal died two or three years before this happened. Her family have unearthed recollections, bits of evidence, which show that she had a polka dot dress, that she talked about wearing it. And curiously, very curiously, she had a very strange and troubled life. But her last husband was a man who worked with and for the CIA. There we go. <laughs> well, yes and no, really. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a great fan of conspiracy yes. theories, to put it mildly. I like facts. I like primary source mm. documents. I like original evidence. But I think the key to your fact is is the recording, which you know the 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 fact that well, I mean, the, that's a, a gun can't fire thirteen shots if it's only capable of firing eight. No, you mean you can't get thirteen bullets out of an eight shot revolver. Nor can you get another fourteen bullet holes in the woodwork when only eight shots were fired. And the quotes all accounted for. Now, those are I mean, those are fundamental facts.
But did the but did the tape the tape recording didn't pick up on all of those shots then? If there no, were 40, I mean because it was obviously you, it's so short a period. Yeah, well, you're dealing with a five yes. five and a bit second yes. period. There was one other thing which we perhaps I should have mentioned. Phil and Brad, when they, Phil Van Prague and Brad, my co-author, when they worked on this back in the late nineties, did one other thing which I think was a fine and responsible piece of work. They said, this is a very short period of time. This is five and a bit seconds. 13 shots. Is it physically possible to fire 13 shots in five and a bit seconds? Well, let's find out, shall we? So they hired the best weapons expert working on Hollywood movies who has worked with guns professionally for a living all his life and they said try please here with an identical gun it's impossible you can't shoot an Ivor Johnson 22 caliber revolver that fast it's physically impossible what was the political leaning of the polka dot dress woman we don't know that. That's a, it's, a, it's a good question, but we don't know that. You know, if I can short-circuit the answer to that, I think the question I would ask is slightly different, and that is, how come this mysterious woman is there? She's behaving in such a strange way. She interacts with Sehan, and after he has coffee with her, he has no memory of anything who was she how could she how could she be there is this yet another coincidence or is there something a little bit more sinister and this is the point at which people tend to start rolling their eyes because what i'm going to say sounds like a conspiracy theory it isn't every dot and comma of what follows is fact it's fact proven by documents original documents released under the freedom of information act and what it shows what they show is that in the 1950s there was a very well-funded, very extensive and extremely elaborate experimental program to create what the organisers of this program called a hypno-programmed robot assassin. It sounds like a bad Hollywood movie, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm not making this up. These are the exact words of the organisers of this programme. Who were the organisers of this programme? The CIA. It was an operation called Operation Artichoke. I have, and other journalists have, all the surviving documents that were released. I should say that in our book, we tell readers, don't take our word for this, we reproduce those documents, but this is where you find them. Please go and check for yourself. Do your own research. Call us out if you think we're wrong. 
Those documents show that in the 1950s, the mid-1950s, the CIA set up something called Operation Artichoke to create, its words, a hypno-programmed robot assassin who would carry out an assassination of a redacted politician or an American official, and who would then, having carried out the assassination, have no memory of having done so. Again, not my words, these are the CIA's own documents saying this is what we are setting out to do. And however bizarre, however crazy it sounds, that's an experiment, isn't it? The test, surely, is did that experiment ever prove successful? And yes, it did. How do I know? Because I got the CIA's own document in which the man who ran this operation describes making it work, and he describes the circumstances in which he made it work. He describes programming a CIA secretary to pick up a gun, unloaded, thankfully, point it at her boss, shoot it, put it down, and then have no memory until she was woken up from the hypno-programming. And he recounts this, and he recounts that it works. So by the late 1950s, the CIA has perfected this technique. That's not a theory, that's not a conspiracy theory, it's a fact. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The circumstances of Sihan and the polka dot dress girl, and everything that followed, match in every dot and comma that program. What is the method? The method is to get what you might call a patsy, someone who's susceptible, to hypnotize him, to program him, that he will carry out an assassination at a given time, in a given place, and then that he will not have any memory of carrying it out. And that is exactly what happened to Sahan. Working backwards, he had no memory of the assassination. So when he is taken to the police station, what is his first his, remark? Again, we have the tapes yes. of this. And he's in a strange state. The LAPD say, we thought he was either drunk or on drugs and we carried out tests and he wasn't. But it was almost as if he was dissociated. So he was in a sort of trance, basically. But fair play to LAPD. They've arrested a man... <laughs> In the act of firing, he's holding weapon. a gun. Yeah, and, he's, he is he quite has, literally he holding has. a smoking gun. You know, mm. you, you can't fault them for for jumping to the conclusion mm. this guy's got to be the killer. He can't 
describe any of this. The tapes of his early interviews are him mumbling. It is as if he was dissociated, as you say, in a trance. In the weeks that follow, he is assessed by a succession, and indeed the years that follow, by a succession of psychiatrists and psychologists, court-appointed for both the defence and the prosecution. And they all reach the same conclusion. Every psychiatrist or psychologist who's examined him has reached the same conclusion. This man was hypnotised. This man was acting in under an, an hypnotic trance. And what's more, and this I think is from the prosecution psychiatrist, there was something really strange. They put Sihan under hypnosis to see if they could recover his memory. As, again, the court ordered this process or approved of it. And they found something very strange. They found not merely was Sihan incredibly susceptible to hypnosis, but all the evidence pointed to him having been hypnotised previously. Again, I'm not drawing these conclusions. These are in Every, these are in the documents held in LAPD's filing cabinets for 20 years and which were belated So released. that would suggest that he wasn't the wrong man in the, 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 right, the right place, the wrong man, right time, whatever you want to call it, but they had done something to him previously to, prior to that night. Mm -hmm. That's That, I think, is the presumption. And... It's not just my presumption. There's a particularly eminent um, expert on hypnosis mm. who has examined Sahan for a period of 100 plus hours over recent years. And his affidavits presented to the court, it's a press called Dr. Daniel Brown, show that it every, every single piece of evidence shows that Sahan had been pro hypnotized previously, had been programmed to be in that place or go to that place. And here's where we think the polka dot dress girl led him to the pantry to fire his weapon while a, the real assassin, the professional assassin, mm. shot Kennedy from behind. Again, it all... And has he at any point said that he had any previous contact with this polka dot dress girl mm. because he obviously found her attractive and he had the coffee with her if you want if you yes. want to put it in yes. in, in, in simple terms yes. she would have been the trigger yes she would have been the person you know so you the hypno programming goes and i'm obviously simplifying this you will meet a girl who you will find attractive she'll be wearing a polka dot dress you will do what she tells you and go where she tells you have you not seen the darren brown episode on this I haven't, no. Have you seen it? No. He reconstructs it and gets an audience member to do an assassination. I was, when I first came across this, and even when I had the CIA's own documents, I was a little, you know, everyone's going to be sceptical. It's the hardest mm. sell in the world, isn't it? Yeah, it wasn't Sihan with the smoking gun. It was a CIA hypno-programmed assassination. I have to tell you, when I'm 
got the film I made commissioned by Channel 4, it was the hardest part to convince them of, and they wanted to go through every dot and comma of the documents as well, and I don't blame them. The same with the book, you know, you have to... We're responsible journalists, we're not conspiracy theorists, we're not saying, we've got an idea, let's see how we can make this fit. We say, let's follow the evidence. So I was initially as sceptical and as hesitant about this, even with the CIA's own documents in my hand. And so I consulted the man who was then the top expert in hypnosis in the United States, he's no longer with us, Dr. Herb Spiegel. And Spiegel walked me through this and said, yes, of course. This is how it works. We know this works, and you know this because the C you've got the CIA papers. But he said, he told me about an experiment that had been conducted on film, and I'd never heard of this experiment. I don't know if you've heard of this one. It's similar to the, what you describe as the Darren Brown one. It was conducted for Columbia University, I think, in the, in the late 60s, and it involved hypno-programming a member of staff who was as was common at the time, a good left-wing anti-war academic. And hypno-programming him to believe and to spew out anti uh, pro-war propaganda and to denounce his <laughs> colleagues <laughs> as communist stooges. <laughs> and I said to Spiegel, really? Did this happen? And he said, Shall I show you? And he played the film. And you see this man, and he's doing this, and you can see him. You can see almost his brain confabulating and trying to get out the story he's been programmed to tell. And he does exactly that. He denounces his colleagues. He names them. He says, he's a communist. And then the man's woken up. And he is absolutely distraught. And has no recollection of, of this whatsoever. And has no recollection of the programming. Wow. Again, if it sounds far-fetched, if it sounds the stuff of fiction, please read the book. It says you will find this at this source. Go and check it. Look for yourself. Argue with me. But you can't argue with Brad because he's no longer with us, but argue with me by all, by all means. What we do and what we set out to do, unlike other authors who've worked on this case, we didn't set out with a conclusion in mind. We said, we're going to do what LAPD didn't do, and we're going to use their own material and the FBI material to do this. We're going to reconstruct this layer by layer by layer and build it up and at the end if you the reader reach a conclusion that's up to you we're saying this is what the evidence shows and this is where you find the evidence please go and look for yourself and with regard to sahan have you actually spoken with him yourself or corresponded with him in any form the rules in California are 
make that impossible. Yes. Inmates are not now, and haven't been for 20-something years, allowed to speak with reporters and with mm. journalists. So that's impossible. Obviously, I've spoken, we've spoken with him through, if you like, through intermediaries. Mm. So the survivor I mentioned, Paul Schrade, who was um, very badly wounded by Sahan, no, unquestionably, was w- wounded in the head by Sahan's bullet. Paul is in his 90s now and is one of the best and most honorable and decent men I have ever met and is a staunch advocate for Sahan. Not, he doesn't say Sahan didn't do anything wrong. He said Sahan shot me. <laughs> but Sahan didn't shoot Bobby. And Paul and Sahan are quite close. So if that's our, that has been our route, if you like. In a sense, and you know, other people have said, well, Sahan's going to be up for parole. He's up for parole. He's been told he can have parole now at the 16th or 17th time of asking. It's not certain yet. I mean, the governor of California still hasn't made up his mind whether to agree. Are you going to interview Sahan? And my instinct is to say no. And there's a simple reason for that. There's nothing that Sahan can tell me. He doesn't know. For 50 years, more than 50 years, Sahan has said exactly the same thing. He's told exactly the same story for 50 plus years. The last thing he remembers is coffee with the polka dot dress girl and then Rosie Greer, the big American football player, jumping on his head in the pantry. He does not remember. He can't remember. What benefit is there in saying to him, well, you've got to be able to remember. Another reporter whose work initially on the case was, I have to say, first rate, but then who had some bizarre episode. He was the last reporter, a man called Dan Muldea. He was the last reporter to interview Sahan. And Dan had spent, by that point, best part of a decade conducting interviews with ex-LAPD officers and other people, which showed that Sihan had not carried out the killing. And Dan had three interviews with Sihan. And in the last one, for reasons Dan still hasn't been able to explain, and I've talked this through with Dan a number of times, he suddenly decided that Sihan was lying. He has no evidential basis for this. And so changed the tenor of everything and said, yeah, everything that these officers said was true and about the bullet holes and about the impossibility of Sahan firing, but I still think he did it. I think that's irresponsible. I mean, I think it's grossly irresponsible to say this man assassinated Robert Kennedy unless you have the evidence for that, and there isn't evidence for it. So if a survivor was on Saran's side and the autopsy showed a bullet going in here and Saran was at a distance, how was Saran convicted? Sahan gets representation from some pretty high-up lawyers in LA, but they're working pro bono. 
and they look at this. Bear in mind, he's been arrested with a smoking gun in the pantry. He doesn't look. And he has shot. Other he has people. shot five people. It doesn't look good, and he can't remember anything. And at that point, the DA is saying, "This is a capital case. We're going to go for death if, as and when, he's convicted." And there is. Toing and froing, toing and froing, and again the court papers. I went through acres of court reporting, court official official court papers for this, show that the defence came to the conclusion that the only way to keep Sahan out or keep him off death row was to plead him guilty by way of insanity. And on the very first day of the trial. Sehan's own defense attorney stood up and said, we're going to tell you that Sehan shot these bullets and shot Senator Kennedy. When your own defense team mm. say he did it, it's pretty hard not to get convicted. So they was like, um, working for the state effectively. No, I think... I mean, there, is a, there, is a, there, are, there are a lot of murky elements to that defense team. But I think they probably did the best they could or the best and they their, thought Their could strategy have. probably was to keep him off the death row. That their was, strategy that was, absolutely that was, was that to was, keep him off death row. That was we the only him. important thing to them because this man was holding a gun and he had shot people. And, absolutely and, right. We plead him guilty... But sorry, not guilty by reason of insanity. He doesn't get death, and he doesn't know what he he's done because no, he exactly. doesn't have any memory of it. I mean, I can see that as a perfectly benign and, in fact, in some ways, sensible strategy. If if you take the trouble to examine the forensics, there is an extraordinary exchange in the trial, in which the coroner, Thomas Noguchi, is presenting his autopsy. Now, that autopsy shows that Sihan, who's there, and Kennedy, who's there, Sihan couldn't have shot Kennedy from behind there. That autopsy is absolutely unequivocal, and Tom Noguchi was absolutely unequivocal. In fact, he'd been under pressure not to present that his findings, or to water them down, but had told the DA to go do one, basically. The defence, and I, I went through the transcripts of the trial, painstakingly. When Noguchi's up on the stand, the defence stands up. Sahan's defence lawyer stands up and says, we don't want to hear this. We don't need to hear this. We don't need the details. That's fine. Sit down, please. That's that. Mm. Well, they just wanted the situation to go away. Yeah, and you know you can argue, and I think it's a reasonable argument. And they were also trying to save his life. That's, that's I think their, that's the big that, that, one. That, that was the, the big one. The trade yeah. they made. Yeah, and I can see that, and I can see that as a reasonable decision. But you know, you've got to, and it's also fair to say that the defence didn't get that autopsy report until very, very late in the day. 
But I would like to think that my, if I were in similar circumstances, circumstances, my defence lawyer would look a little more carefully at the autopsy report. So I imagine that his legal representatives have changed over the years and he's gone through the appeals processes. Yeah, the appeals processes are not terribly helpful. Um, American appeals, you know, once you've been convicted, it's pretty hard to get unconvicted, if you like. In fact, you, it's, this is post-Saham, but it's now on a matter of legal record and precedent in the States that innocence is no bar, not just to conviction, but to execution. That's a court decision. Mm. Yes, he's been through the process. Yes, those appeals failed. But that, I think, is probably and I hope Sahan would forgive me saying this, probably the least important of the legal processes. The one conclusion and recommendation which Brad, my co-author, and I allowed ourselves in the book at the end was to say, this is what we are telling you we believe. And what we believe is that there has never been an open, honest, and impartial investigation into this assassination and that there should have been there have been attempts and each attempt has been shut down and the behavior of la law if you want to call lapd the da's office over the years and decades has been nothing short of disgraceful what those like paul schrade who survived the, the attack and I, and Brad, my late co-author, and others argue for is not a, an overturning of his Sihan's conviction or a pardon or an exoneration. What we say is there has never been a proper investigation, an honest one. We have done the best we can. It's taken us 25 years, and we've gone through every page and every bit of recording. We think the evidence from LAPD's own files so far reaches above the legal threshold of prima facie evidence, of probable cause, of something else, that there needs to be a full, open, honest, and official investigation or reinvestigation of this case what happened when the files were handed over to the california state archive from lapd when what happened well they were handed over in dribs and drabs but they were forced over it was you know lapd fought this for years and indeed decades but when they were handed over they were catalogued i mean there's a there's, there's a vast, vast amount of this. And piece by piece, they were catalogued and they're available and they're open to public inspection at the archives in Sacramento. And that's where I got hold of them. And that's where Brad got hold of his, his copies. And anyone can get them from there. And it's not that they are confusing or equivocal what they show very clearly 
is not just that Sihan could not physically and therefore did not kill Kennedy, not just that there were other gunmen, uh, was another gunman or other gunmen, see the bullet holes, see the bullet sounds, but that LAPD knew at the time of three conspiracies to assassinate Bobby Kennedy if he won the California state primary. Bear in mind, that's exactly when he was assassinated. Those conspiracies were reported to LAPD within days or weeks of the assassination. Bizarrely, LAPD did very little with it. They mainly sent the FBI out to conduct a couple of interviews. But when I found the documents, when I found the investigative reports, I was absolutely astonished. Because they say, in chapter and verse, they describe allegations made by named individuals that other named individuals in organized crime, American organized crime, and the Teamsters Union, which was, if you like, a, an adjunct of organized crime, had plotted and were plotting to kill Bobby Kennedy if he looked like he was going to win and the had president. He, he had spoken out in the past about these matters, hadn't he not? He had persecuted, yes. and le- properly persecuted organized crime for a decade at this point. He, 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 organized crime, the mafia, loathed Bobby Kennedy with a vengeance that perhaps only organized crime families can maintain. They absolutely detested him. And... LAPD gets given this information. This man, Jimmy Hoffa, these guys have said, while they're in a penitentiary, in my hearing, says a named individual, that they're going to have Bobby Kennedy rubbed out. Now, any honest cop, any honest detective, would chase that down, wouldn't he? LAPD didn't bother. They sent the FBI out, and the FBI went to the penitentiary, and they, they, first of all, they traced the witness who was out on parole. He's named in the book. And he said, yeah, I heard this. I'm telling you this. This is where it was said. This is when it was said. This is who else was present. Names, dates, times, places. He said, I won't testify, and I'm out on parole. There's nothing you can give me that I want. So LAPD, uh, sorry, FBI went to the penitentiary where these guys were incarcerated. And two of the guys said, yeah, yeah, something like that was said, yeah, but it's, yeah, no, no, no. And the main man said, Fafanculo, I'm not talking to you. And the FBI just walked away. If that was all that happened, there was another one, almost identical, almost the identical names. That wasn't investigated either. But the third one, which is what really blew my socks off, was a phone call. It began with a phone call coming into LAPD in the days after the assassination, and it came from law enforcement up in Northern California, in a little town in Northern California, and this guy, the, law, the chief of police said, look, I don't know, you, maybe you don't want to know this, but there's a, a rancher, a wealthy rancher in our town, 
and I and my colleagues overheard him boasting in the local Elks Club that there was a mafia fund. His mafia friends in Las Vegas had a fund to assassinate Bobby Kennedy, and it was running at $500,000, and he'd contributed several thousand dollars to this fund himself. Mm. Now, this comes from a pretty good source. This is Mm. the chief of police and his deputy. LAPD doesn't bother to investigate this. Again, it lets the FBI go up. The FBI goes up, and this rancher, bear in mind the ranchers had a beef with Bobby Kennedy because he had beaten them or helped the labor unions beat them a few years previously. And this rancher has genuinely connections with organized crime in Las Vegas. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. And the FBI talked to him. And they said, did you say this? And he said, yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. But no, 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 no. I didn't mean it. No, 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 I I didn't. And I honestly haven't contributed to any fund. And other than interviewing, I think, the local librarian who said, oh, he's a jolly nice chap with a nice family. Mm. That's where the investigation ended. Now, they didn't want to look in other places. Absolutely not. And you can say, well, of course they didn't. Mm. They had the bloke with, Mm. with a smoking gun. But that bloke with the smoking gun didn't and could not have killed And he's not changed his story at all in 50 years. Not one jot. So you've got a CIA program. You've got organized crime having a motive. Was there a relationship between organized crime and the CIA? Oh, yes. Um, A series of congressional and indeed inquiries and indeed say the CIA's own documents, show that in the early 60s, the CIA contracted with organized crime to help it carry out its political assassination and other attempts in Cuba, amongst other places. The CIA was deeply in bed with organized crime, with the mafia, for several years. So you're saying that they would recruit them to do their hits? I'm saying it's entirely possible that they recruited them. Again, I want to stress, we're trying to be cautious, responsible journalists. We're not saying, we solved the case, we can tell you what happened. What we're saying is, this is the evidence. This is what a responsible official investigation should go through, page by page, as we have for 25 years. And then, it can come to a conclusion. But what you are saying effectively is this man could not have done this, but you don't know who actually did this. I'm so, we're saying yes. absolutely yes. unequivocally Sihan could not and did not yes. shoot Bobby Kennedy. Yes, he shot five other people. Mm. That does beg the question, doesn't it? Who, well, who did then? What we say is LAPD's own evidence, the police's own evidence, shows they had a number of credible suspects who had means, who had motive, who had opportunity. And who were not investigated. Did they fit the description of the man with the polka dot dress woman? (laughs) One of them did. 
It's a long and involved tale, but yes, he crops up in a bizarre eyewitness account. An exact and identical description of this man with the polka dot dress girl given from a witness who never met Sandy Serrano, who wasn't at the Ambassador Hotel, but had seen the girl and this man and Sahan together two days previously. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you tell us the long tale? It would take days. <laughs> um, if Honestly, if you want to read it... Oh, I'm so sorry. If you want to know... Please do. I think it's something of a... We don't... We can't thread every needle because mm. you can't. I mean, it's not honest to say that you can. And it's and 50 years have passed and people's memories. He was a man called Jerry Owen. He was known as the walking Bible because he was a preacher, an itinerant preacher who claimed to be able to recite every last verse of the scriptures. He volunteers information to LAPD in immediately after the shooting saying oh yeah I picked up this guy Seham in my truck and took him around and we were going to look at horses and there was this and there was that and he becomes a person of interest shall we say for about a week and then some of the stuff he's saying just doesn't check out some of it is weird and some of it is plainly untrue. And so LAPD discard him. And then some, I'm, I'm talking about this, some journalists, a, a journalist called John Christian, this is in 68, 69, and his ex-FBI partner pick up on this and start to pull at this and they present this man, Jerry Owen, as the, the walking Bible as the man who is the killer, who's, in, who's responsible. John, who I knew and got to know quite well, was a drunk, a hopeless drunk. But LAPD's files show they spent all their time pursuing John Christian and trying to harass him and trying to get him nicked rather than investigating the truth of this odd story. And the odd story is set out in some detail in the book, and there's one final little twist. Do you remember the polka dot dress girl? And do you remember my colleague Brad finding mm -hmm. the woman who is most likely to have been the polka dot dress girl, Elaine Neal? Who was friends with Jerry Owen, the walking Bible? The, her children, her nephews, her nieces, recalled them being together on several occasions. What does that prove? I can't actually tell you. But I, what it tells me is it's yet another piece another of the jigsaw that needs to be fully explored. You know, no one funds me or Brad to do this. A book, de a book deal doesn't do that. But 
LAPD, the DA's office, the state of California has the resources. It should have the motive to launch an honest, honest investigation. It hasn't done so. It seems that during the 60s there was a lot of assassinations. Four. Were the assassinations whereby lone gunmen who appeared to be hypnotised were used? Was no. There, there's no parallels? Not that I know of, no. Um, but then, you know, I should stress, I am not remotely an expert on any of the other um, investiga- uh, assassinations, even if I qualify as an expert on RFK. I'm certainly not. I don't have any expertise in the JFK, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X investi- uh, assassinations. So, to the best of my knowledge, no, is the answer. Does that answer your question, James? Because James has followed this and he was very curious to meet you, weren't you? Yeah. Well, I hope I've answered some of your questions. <laughs> <laughs> So why was this assassination more important than the assassination of JFK? Two reasons. The first is it's so much more clear-cut than JFK. The JFK assassination story just keeps going round in circles and you know, goes back to the um, the film on the, on the grassy knoll and interpretations and claims and, 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 and. The Robert Kennedy assassination, the evidence in the Robert Kennedy assassination, the evidence that LAPD collected is so clear. It is so unequivocal. It shows that Sihan did not and could not have killed Robert Kennedy. That's the first reason why it's more important, because it's so much clearer the second is the importance of Bobby Kennedy. You know, someone much wiser than me described him as probably the best president the US never had. John Kennedy was one thing. Robert Kennedy, to my mind, was the real deal. It was fascinating when I was in the early stages of the research, going back through the years he spent, his so-called wilderness years, after John's assassination, three or four years, when he toured the world, he went to Europe, he went to South America, to Latin America, and he was studying, he was thinking. These were his quiet years. And when he's beginning to make speeches from 1965 onwards, and then when he's running as a candidate, one word comes out through all of these speeches and campaigns. And it's a word you would, which surprised me when I picked it out. And it, I picked it out because it crops up again and again and again and again. And that word is revolution. What Bobby Kennedy was arguing for was a revolution. No ifs, no buts, no maybe. It wasn't a revolution with guns and with barricades. In fact, he argued long and hard against that. He was going to unquestionably, he said it, he committed himself to this, pull America out of Vietnam. Now, that would have been six years and how many thousands of lives? American lives, let alone tens of thousands of Vietnamese lives. 
before Nixon did it. He wanted a different kind of war. He wanted a war on economic inequality and on social injustice. And what he was proposing was not just a revolution, but was revolutionary. Had Bobby Kennedy made it to the Oval Office, not just America, but the world would have looked a very different place. That ultimately is why it's important. Not a lot of politicians say those things, though. When they get in power, they do the opposite. He had a he had a history of say of doing exactly what he said. I mean, he did not make friends in the political. So you would say he's upset a lot of the vested interests. Who it's had not me saying that. It's yes. not me saying that. He yes. said that. Yes. Um, there was a, a so aside from the organized crime, there were there were business interests who. Oh yeah, who, I mean, you know, he the, the the ranch owners for just to take yes. one constituency loathed him. Why? Because he was, I suppose, the key tipping point in helping the farm workers who were on strike win the first battle in their war against the ranchers. The farm workers were poor, dispossessed immigrants by and large, and they were treated appallingly. Bobby Kennedy went and stood up for them and campaigned for them and stopped them getting arrested unlawfully. The farm workers loathed him. The farm the ranchers loathed him. The farm workers loved him. That was the other thing which struck me when I was filming in the States, searching and filming in the States on this from 1988 onwards through to 2015, 2016. I met two types of people. I met people on the one hand who idolised Robert Kennedy, adored him. I mean, really adored him. And I met people who absolutely loathed him. It was visceral. And the, the, the person I never found was somewhere in the middle. There wasn't. And, you know, you, you look at Kennedy's own speeches and his talks and his interviews. And way back in 1961, when he said he's interviewed, and he's, taught, he's asked about all the enemies he's making and how... The political establishment and the power brokers in Washington view him, and he said, "You won't have to look far from my far for my enemies. You won't have to look far for my enemies. They're all over town, and they were. And part of that was because when he said, "I'm going to do this," however unpopular, he did it. So one of the biggest vested interests, perhaps the biggest, would be the war machine. Do you think that he? represented a similar threat to the war machine as his brother represented and I think probably he represented of- no, I think probably he represented a far greater threat to the war machine am I saying the military industrial complex had Bobby Kennedy killed no I'm not saying that because I'm not saying a ju- journalists don't solve cases <laughs> what I'm saying is and since you asked the question did he pose a threat to the military industrial complex absolutely of course he did he was going to pull the U.S. out of Vietnam. He, there was no equiv- equivocation about this. I'm going to do this. And he would have done so. He was quite clear, absolutely clear, that the U.S. was in the wrong and should not be in Vietnam. 
And what the US was doing in Vietnam was anathema. What do you think about his determination to reopen the investigation into JFK's assassination? There's mixed evidence on this. Publicly, he didn't vary from his earlier statement that he backed the Warren Commission. He'd never read the Warren Commission report, but he wasn't going to shake the tree. That was his public stance. In private, and I found the people he'd talked to, we found the people he'd talked to in private, and they said he promised us. He had changed his mind. He wanted a new investigation into the John F. Kennedy's assassination, into his brother's assassination. He had come to the conclusion that not all was right there. Why does his brother's assassination get all the attention? I think partly it's logical, isn't it? John Kennedy was the president. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. Bobby wasn't. And there was more, there was television footage. Yeah, I mean, that. All, know, that's always image, a driver. The image it? is always more powerful than, Absolutely than the right. silent killing. Well, not, yeah. the, not the silent killing because of the tape recording. No, but, but I mean, it but, is, you're absolutely right. You know, we are, and we were beginning then, particularly in the States, a television culture. Yes. And we're a, we're a more visual, visual, you know, the picture tells a thousand words, they say, you know. And, you know, I think part of this is exactly that. Part of it is the very logical explanation that John, was, John Kennedy was the president and Bobby Kennedy never got to be president. But part of it, I think, is laziness. When I first, I first came to the story because an old CIA contract agent approached me with a manuscript he'd written. He'd got hold of some of the evidence before it had been released. This was in 1988. And he'd written this manuscript in which he posited all sorts of theories based on that. The manuscript was possibly the worst thing I've ever read in my life. And when it was published, he was promptly sued and the book was withdrawn. I took it to my bosses. I was then working for, as you mentioned, the Cook Report. And this is in 1988. And I said, this manuscript is is rubbish, but there's something in the evidence. There's something in the evidence of Sahan and where he was standing and where the gun was found. And I remember exactly what the editor of the Cook Report said. Who the fuck is Bobby Kennedy and why the fuck should we care? (laughs) And that was the reaction I got for the next two years. With, With a couple of subtle variations, the BBC said to me when I was pitching this as a film... Yeah, it's yeah. You know, I'm sure it's a page one story, but it's it, it's in America, and you're based in Yorkshire. That's where I lived at the time. How can you possibly do it? That didn't go well. So finally, it was Channel Four who commissioned this with A and E in the states, and it got a lot of attention, and it helped the film here and the film in the states. The version in the states helped the legal attempts to get a case a case reopened but ultimately those who hold the levers of power in los angeles in california in the state government in sacramento were simply able to say yeah no sorry and nothing happened 
And would you not say also the Sahan has not really done much to... No, that's true. And, you know, in fairness, in fairness, I mean, since we're... I, I hope, like a responsible journalist, try and say at one point during his trial, Sahan threw a, threw a fit and demanded to be put to death and demanded to dismiss his own counsel, his own lawyers and said, I did it, I did it, I did it. He was restrained and that was all struck out. But no, in that sense, Sehan didn't help himself. And since then, nothing he has said has helped his case. And with, but with, then what could he say which would help his case? But with, with regard to the Kennedy family, are uh, not two of the family... Um, they've they've given positive messages about him more recently. There have been six of them that have been very outspoken against him. From what I so there were eleven. Bobby Kennedy had eleven children. This of the surviving children, the one who has been most outspoken about Sihan's innocence of his father's killing. Or Robert F. Kennedy's killing, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he has gone all out over recent years and said Sahan didn't do it and Sahan should be released. And he was supported, or at least partially supported, by one of his younger brothers mm. um, in the most recent case, who was more equivocal but said he thought Sahan should get parole. Six of the others have said no. Sehan should not get parole, and we don't want this to happen. To the best of my knowledge and belief, and I, the only one I've had any dealings with is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of whom more in a minute, none of the those Kennedy children have gone through the evidence. Now, you know, I don't blame them for that. You know, if my father had been assassinated and had become... A political footballer called Celebre, I'm not sure I would have the emotional strength to go through, to spend a quarter of a century examining every last piece of paper. I think it's unfortunate. I think it's also unfortunate that the Kennedy, Robert Kennedy's family, don't seem, on the evidence I have, of capable of talking to each other in any intimate way, particularly about this. I mean, from all I gather, and that's from those who do know them, it's it's a no-go area. Robert Kennedy Jr., the one who's championing Sihan's cause in that sense, is himself a divisive and controversial figure, you know, his anti-vax stance is, depending on where you, where you personally stand, it's at the very least controversial. For me, it's grossly irresponsible. But that's a personal opinion. When I've dealt with him, I have found him unreliable. That doesn't help. You know, were the Kennedy family to come together and say, we're not ju judging this, we're not reaching a conclusion, but yes, we would back a new 
open, honest and impartial official investigation, then I think it's more likely than not that one would happen. But it seems very unlikely, given the majority of them are, I think that's, are firmly fixated on their... I think that's unta- undoubtedly true. I think, it's, I think it's a major stumbling block, and I think that's unfortunate. It's doubly unfortunate. And would you say Robert um, Kennedy Jr. is taking that stance just to provoke his own family members? Perhaps? I have no idea. And one of the things I learnt in yes. my earliest days as a, as a journalist yes. was never impute motive unless you know it. Hmm. Um, but I given, know. given his controversial nature on on so many subjects, the, he seems like a very provocative character from what I've I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, as I say, I had limited dealings with him. Brad dealt with him more, and I found him difficult and unreliable. To what extent that plays a part in this, I couldn't tell you. I'm merely telling you what I found. You know, there's one last reason why I think it's unfortunate that the Kennedys can't come together to do this. Of the two other major political assassinations of the 60s, John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. John Kennedy's assassination prompt provoked the Warren Commission, which reported, whatever you think of its findings, reported and was open in pretty damn quick time. Yes, there is still some material which needs to be released. Both the JFK assassination and the Martin Luther King assassination were the subject of extensive congressional hearings in the House Assassination Committee, Committee on Assassinations. The one who has never, the case who has, the assassination which has never been treated to this sort of open public investigation is Robert Kennedy. The only official investigation, and it was at best flawed, at worst corrupt, was that by LAPD. We need a new one. So earlier on you said he's not helped his case because he can't remember anything. But doesn't that prove his case? Because if you look at Shawshank, you know, they let you out if you say, sorry, I did this, show remorse, I'm going to be a good guy. And he could he could have probably been out by now. So by not, by consistently saying he doesn't remember, and he's he's extending his stay in prison, isn't he? Well, to a degree. I mean, he, again, to be to be clear and to be accurate, he has, as well as saying I don't remember, he's saying, but I want to apologise. If I did it, I'm sorry. You know, and to the people I did shoot, I'm sorry, but I don't remember. That's that's as much as he can say. Is does the fact that he can't remember prove his case? No, I don't think it does. It supports the psychiatric and psychological findings, which are immensely detailed. And I would, again, I would suggest that if anyone's interested, they should read the lengthy psychiatric reports filed with the court. And we tell you where you can find them. We transcribe many of them. But we tell them, you go, this, go read this. this. This is, it sets it out. Sahan's absolute and genuine amnesia supports that, but it's that's the old conundrum. Does the absence of evidence 
mean there's evidence of absence? Does it prove innocence? No, it doesn't. It supports, it's more prima facie evidence for saying we have surpassed the threshold for probable cause. The needs to be a new investigation. If this were any other case, if this were, if this was the Birmingham six, Birmingham six, or the Guildford four, as happened in both of those cases, there was a new investigation. For some reason, and for reasons I can't really fathom, this doesn't happen in the Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy case, even though the evidence is so stark. So obviously you're a heavyweight in this genre. What other heavyweights have put it to independent scrutiny? There have been a few other books, um, starting in 68 by the man who led LAPD's team. Um, and that, as you would imagine, is a full-throated hoorah LAPD. <laughs> um, there are, since then, there have been three or four others, four, I think, maybe five. With one exception, they suffer from what I see as a fundamental flaw. They come from both sides of the argument, by the way. Some said, Sahan did it. And, the, and some say, Sahan didn't do it. But the, the authors, and they're primarily journalists, have started with a conclusion. They've started with a thesis which they set out to prove. I don't think that's how you conduct a convincing impartial investigation. When Brad and I set out to write this, having spent a quarter of a century each cross-referencing, cross examining all of the evidence, available evidence, and then some, and interviewing as many people who were there and were eyewitnesses as possible. We said one simple rule. There isn't a conclusion that we're starting out with. We're laying out the facts. We're laying out the events as they happened in real time and as, after the assassination, they came into LAPD. We're doing this using their own documents, its own documents, the FBI's own documents, court documents, and we're not saying, there, this proves things. We're saying, here's the evidence, piece by piece, layer by layer. At the end of it, make your own mind up. Did you and Brad ever um, debate any of those people? No. Oh, that's not true. I'm sorry. The journalist who I mentioned who wrote a book, uh, Brad Molde uh, Don Dan Moldea, who's an organized crime, an old organized crime reporter, and who I've known since 1988, and like a lot, actually, who'd done a lot of very good forensic investigation, finding the LAPD cops who remembered the bullets and who had found the bullets, and had then changed his mind. And having got a commission for his book to write about how this was a gross miscarriage of justice, twisted it round in the last chapters and said Sehan did it. I sat down with Dan in a restaurant just outside DC in 2015. And with his permission, we, you know, we had a 
back and forth and I recorded it. And I said, I want to use parts of this in the book. And he said, that's fine. And no matter how I pushed him and no matter how I asked him, I could not get him to explain how he came to the conclusion he did that Sehan had done it. It was as if at the last minute he'd had some revelation which was impossible for the rest of us to see, which contradicted all the other evidence he'd assembled for the rest of the book, and then said, on the basis of this and on the basis of, I think, Sehan's a bastard, he did it. And, you know, yes, Dan and I have gone back and forward on this. I told him I think he's grossly irresponsible. Um, he doesn't agree. You might be surprised to know. You got any more questions, Matthew? No, I don't Don't think I do, actually. But um, What about Joe and James? You, got, you guys got any questions, James? I hope I've probably put them yeah. to sleep. <laughs> no, this is absolutely no, fascinating, Tim. Uh, have you looked at um, Sahan, Sahan's past and um, about his life leading up to the assassination? Mm-hmm. There, um, yeah. Any clues to him having any involvement with the woman with the polka dot dress or any CIA type figures? There is a period in Sahan's life for about a week, which, according to LAPD's own investigation, in which, according to LAPD's own investigation, he is missing. This is in the weeks leading up to the, weeks or months leading up to the assassination. He's had a fall from the horse. He's been been treated for a head wound. And he can't, he has no memory of what happened. But according to LAPD's own files, he disappears from view at this point. And, did he live alone? Did he have... He uh, lived with his he, mum. He lived with his mother. He, but, you know, he's a 20-something-year-old young, young man. You know, he would be out at night sometimes. Um, what I also found, and this was not in LAPD's files, I tracked down a recording of a man called William Bryant. Now, William Bryant probably doesn't mean anything to anybody here. But he was, by his own boast, Mr. Hypnosis on behalf of the CIA. He claimed to have been involved, and he was genuinely involved in that. He was a big fish in hypnosis in L.A. And he, by his own account, which subsequently turns out to have been true, he was involved with the CIA in its hypnoprogramming unit. And he let slip in this recording which was conducted by a citizen researcher back in the early, early 70s, and I got hold of a copy, he let slip that he may well have had some involvement with Sahan at this period. Now, it's tantalising, it's not proof. Brian himself died a few years later, allegedly of a heart attack with some prostitutes. Um... People tend to die, by the way, in this story. Remember the rancher that die early? Remember the rancher who'd be contributed to a, a mafia fund? Mm. He died within two or three years of that at a very young age in his very early 50s. I can't tell you any more. By the time I find this 
these fire these papers he's been dead best part of 20 years i can't find a cause of death i can't find any reason for his death it may be perfectly innocent mm. were i running an investigation with official funds it's one of the questions i would want to ask same with william bryant how come this man dies in a motel room with prostitutes odd to say the least does that answer your question Probably not. That's one of the best questions of the day, James. Have you got any more? You got you, any more? You come up here and do it, and I can. <laughs> you got any more questions? Because that. Did, did you look into the CIA and uh, the Operation Arthur Chase? Oh yeah. Other characters that came, came to light and interest. Yeah, I mean, I every last page of available CIA documentation on Operation Artichoke is now sitting in my files. I'm far from unique. I wasn't the first person to get hold of these. Another journalist called John Marks did this for um, a book he, he wrote back in the late 70s. What is absolutely fascinating about Artichoke and about these reports, because these are day-by-day -day reports from the CIA guys who are running this, is how much effort they put into it, how much money they had, how they were going coast to coast, how they were hiring people, how they were using staff. This was a big, big operation. And it was, you know, it was completely hidden from the books. And yet there it is. It's sitting there in black and white. This is what we want to do. This is what we're trying to do. And, oh, look, we did it. Mm. Mm. Anything else, James? Can I see the book, Tim? Yeah. Let's hold this up to the camera. Yeah, this is the first edition. There is a second edition, slightly updated. But the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Crime, conspiracy and cover-up. A new investigation. Tim Tate and Brad Johnson. And... Um, yeah, we've gone over all this. I won't read the back. It's quite long. Um, but if you want to get this, all of Tim's links will be in the description box below the video. Tim is active on Twitter as well, if you want to debate him. Um, go over. What's your Twitter handle, Tim? At Tim Tate Books. At Tim Tate Books. It does what it says on the tin. And that book is available on Amazon. I mean, I, I even think it's... <laughs> down at about 99p for a for a digital download so you know who's, who's, 25 years of research for 99p i think is pretty much a bargain really you, you tell a but story so well <laughs> did you narrate the audiobook or did someone I didn't, do that no i didn't i narrated the audiobook for another of my books but not that did one you? did you um, enjoy that process no it's horrible isn't it it's <laughs> i mean I'd, I'd never done i've narrated films before yeah but um i'd never narrated an audiobook it's a unique skill set uh, it was for my most recent book, which is about um, a Cold War spy. Right. And it's full of Polish names and mm. Polish, uh, oh, obscured Polish names. Yes, and to say those after having a few vodkas. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm sitting in the recording studio cursing the person who wrote this book and then realising it was me. <laughs> <laughs> so Tim has researched many things over the years. I mean, this is just one little tiny spot in his oof. And I, I can't even read some of these things because we'll get 
kicked off YouTube, some of the things that he's made films on. I'll, I'll go over some of them, though. So um, China's appalling prison labor gulag, the <laughs> thing to do with transportation of things that are inside human bodies. Let's just say that so we don't tweak the algorithm. Then Philippines... Um, predators going on holiday in the Philippines. That's Can I make this simple for you? I've spent a long time writing books and making films about the bad things adults do to children. Okay, well, well expressed. Um, orphans of the Vietnam War, Britain's worst child serial murderer, the idiocy of the rugby football union and the disturbing truth about the Cleveland case and let's just say alfred kinsey you guys know what alfred kinsey wrote about and then after four years on weekly papers and a year on the regional daily new york uh, yorkshire post he joined checkpoint roger cook's ground great groundbreaking investigative series on bbc radio 4 which my dad was a huge fan on so my dad is, is going to absolutely love what we've done tonight from there he went to central tv spending five eventful years on itv's the cook report investigating bad stuff to kids, like he said, and something, something um, to do with the devil, let's just say. <laughs> I can, there's so, so many words we can't use now on YouTube because I've lost my channel twice this year, Tim, for using those words. It attracted the algorithm to us. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about the video. Let us know what you think happened with the assassination of RFK. Do you... Um, think it went down like it, it it goes down in here or do you have your own theories and were there questions you would have liked to have asked Tim tonight that we have overlooked perhaps you, you may be able to put those to him on Twitter um, please support Matthew as well who's kindly come in to do co-hosting today he's the owner of the Steeples Times do you want to just tell them a little bit what, your steep, what's um, what you can find at the Steeples Times? We're a, a daily publication that covers everything from crime to horse racing. It's a bit of a mixture, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's interesting to know that the the person we discussed today, you know, himself began in the world of horse racing, <laughs> which is um, and we'll we we have a wide range of topics, but uh, many of them are things that you're not allowed to mention either. So, <laughs> <laughs> and and huge thank you to Joe and James coming out today. Their links also are in the description box for the video. Huge thank you, then Tim. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much. Phenomenal. Thank you. Absolutely fascinating. Brilliant. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.